Well, thank you. Take a seat. Please grab a seat. Thank you, uh, pastor and part-time model, Talia Smith. Come on, how good is it? <laughs> well, uh, I hope you're having a good day. We had a, we had a great service this morning, so we're excited to be back here again. Uh, I hope you're enjoying our theme this month. Uh, do, you, do you even Bible, bro? <laughs> And uh, we've, it's actually been really fun. We're running a game show at night, and so I encourage you guys to come back. Uh, and so I'm excited to contribute some thoughts this morning. Yeah. And I uh, just want to encourage you, if you've missed any services over the last few weeks, you can actually download the, the SoundCloud app. Uh, if you need some help with that, just ask someone at the information desk, and hopefully they'll be able to help you. Uh, but you can just download the app and search for City Point Redcliffe, and you can grab all our, all our podcasts off that. Uh, now... This morning, I, I want to have a little bit of fun. Are you guys with me? Yeah. This is uh, really going to be a really simple message. And uh, the title of my message this morning is Celebrity Status, right? Celebrity Status. And I want to have a look at how we view uh, people and especially how we view celebrities. And we're going to focus on how we view people that are in the Bible, right? And I figured it's Do You Even Bible Month, so we better actually read the Bible and, and look at a few stories. And uh, we're going to have some fun. Now, has anyone here noticed that we all tend to see the world a bit differently, yeah. right? We all tend to have on our own life experience goggles and two people can look at the same thing and see different outcomes. Have you noticed that? Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to go into detail this morning, but uh, I'm a football supporter. And uh, one thing I've noticed about football supporters is that every supporter wears their team's goggles, right? <laughs> And so if anyone asks me who the greatest football team is, I'll tell them. Uh, obviously, that's according to me and not according to anyone else. And so, you know, if I think about how, how well the team's playing, I think they play awesome. So I'm the wrong guy to ask. So if I need to find out, I'll have to go and sit down with Vic, who supports someone who opposes us, right? <laughs> uh, a, 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 small, uh, a small club from a small place in the United Kingdom. Anyway, we're not going to talk about that. Anyway... If I need to know about this, I need to go and ask Vic, because we all wear our glasses, right? Yeah. We all wear our life glasses, and so sometimes we need to get another opinion uh, and try and, and think about life uh, from outside our bubble. And so I want to look at this morning at the Bible and the glasses that we wear when we read stories about Bible characters, yeah. right? So we read the Bible in Redcliffe in 2018, and we wear our, our 21st century Western culture glasses. And so when the Bible doesn't make sense to us, a lot of the times we forget that, you know, uh, geographically, uh, culturally, you know, historically, the Bible is actually really foreign to us in this day and age. And so we're, we're focusing this morning on taking the goggles off and trying to clear up uh, some of the misconceptions that we have about Scripture. Now, one of the really common misconceptions about scripture when you actually read the Bible is we misunderstand the scale or the magnitude of events that are taking place, right? And one of my favorite stories in all the Bible is a wedding that Jesus turns up late to and supernaturally turns about a whole bunch of water into wine, right? Has anyone read this story before? And so Basically, the Bible tells us that Jesus turns up to the wedding celebration. And, and, you know, we've all been to a wedding. There's a ceremony and then there's a reception. Uh, a Jewish wedding was a little bit different. Hey, 
A Jewish wedding was a little bit different, right? They would have a wedding ceremony, then part of the ceremony would be the consummation of the wedding. We're not going to talk about that this morning. And then there was the celebration, right? And so Jesus turns up at the celebration, the eat and drink time, right, at the reception, and he turns up late, and he finds out that all the wine has run out. And so Jesus' mother pulls him to one side and says, hey, can you do something about this? Can you do something about the situation? And so we know from what the Bible tells us uh, that the guests are, in one translation, it says that they are well drunk, right? Now, I'm not a, I don't have a master's in theology, so I can't translate like what well drunk actually means. Uh, but suffice to say, if you turned up halfway through a wedding reception and the guests were well drunk and all the wine was gone, you can imagine what sort of state the wedding guests are in, right? Are you guys with me? And so Jesus turns up late. His mum says, can you do something about this? And so Jesus turns water into wine. One of the misconceptions that we have is we don't actually understand how much water he turned into wine. And so I thought today I'd actually give you a bit of an example. Now, the Bible says that Jesus turns about 30 gallons of water into wine. Now, uh, 30 gallons translates to about 680 litres, right? Now, there's about 700 ml of wine in a wine bottle. I, uh, I road test this one this week, just to make sure. Um, it, was, it was pretty average, it was $7, so don't, don't judge me. Um, now, in a 700 ml bottle of wine, right, that equates to 970 bottles. Okay, 970 bottles. There's, uh, there's normally six bottles of wine in a carton, and that equates to 160 cartons, right? 160 cartons. Now, if you stack this um, five high and filled the whole carton up, you'd actually need two and a half pallets of wine to equal 680 litres. You guys with me? So Jesus turns up to the wedding, the guests are drunk, they've run out of wine, and Jesus brings one, two and a half pallets of wine to the wedding. Okay? And so often we misunderstand the Bible because we fail to actually look at it and actually work out the scale of what's taken place. It makes you think a little bit about what Jesus was actually like. I understand now why Jesus is called in the Bible a friend to sinners. Because I'm pretty sure if you turned up with that much wine to any party, you'd be really popular, right? If I turned up to your wedding with two and a half pallets, you'd probably be blown away. And so this is the, the experience that people had about Jesus was this guy, this generous guy that turned up with two and a half pallets to the wedding. Uh, one of the misconceptions that we can have about Scripture is that we fail to understand the gravity or the extremity of what Jesus actually said. Uh, a fantastic example of this is, uh, is a verse in John chapter 14, uh, verse 11, and it says this. It says, Believe me, I am in my Father and my Father is in me. If you can't believe that, believe what you see, these works. In other words, he's saying that, listen, I'm in God and God's in me. Or, or in simple terms, I am God, right? And if you don't believe that I'm God, that's fine. Just believe the works. And the, words, the word works is referring to signs and wonders and miracles. So he's saying, I'm God, and if you don't believe me, just believe 
the sick that have been healed, the people that I've raised from the dead. And he says, if you don't believe me, just look at the works. And then he goes on to make a really outrageous statement. He says, the person who trusts me will not only do what I'm doing, but even greater things. Because I, on my way to the Father, am giving you the same work to do that I've been doing. Just think about that. So Jesus has healed everybody, every sick person that Jesus encountered, he healed. Every oppressed person he liberated, uh, every dead person that he prayed for came back to life. There's at least a few of them that are recorded in the Bible. And yet Jesus makes this statement, you know, greater things will you do because I go to heaven. Just think about the gravity of that situation. Just think about the gravity of that statement for a second. Greater things will you do. And we often just miss that. We often completely misunderstand that because we don't understand how important, how outrageous of a a statement that actually is. And so this morning, uh, I want to look at a little bit at 21st century culture and, and how we view people, right? Now, society loves to, to give people celebrity status. You know, we, we, we tend to give it to, uh, you know, sports stars and uh, actors and musicians. Well, one of the things that I actually kind of find pretty funny is that, uh, you know, even 20 or 30 years ago, you used to have to do something to become famous. <laughs> have you, you realised this? But these days, you can become famous without actually really doing anything, you know? Like, what did Paris Hilton do? I'm pretty sure her dad's rich. Like, she, you know what I mean? She can't act. She can't sing. She, she actually released a song once, I think, at one point. It was terrible. But she was still famous. And so you used to have to achieve something to become a celebrity. And these days, if you, you, know, you can jump on social media. And if you create the right content and have the right look and say the right things, get the right photos, you can actually uh, become a celebrity. And so in society, we love to give people celebrity status. And when we do that, we tend to look at people with our celebrity goggles on, right? And what I want to talk about this morning is that we actually tend to look at people in the Bible. Yeah. Remember, do you even Bible this month? We look at people in the Bible with our celebrity goggles on, right? And when we give people celebrity status, there's normally two things that we do. Okay, we, 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 give, we think someone's a celebrity and we normally shift our way of thinking and it includes two dynamics. Uh, the first dynamic is that we overlook someone's humanity. Okay? We look at celebrities and we overlook the fact that they make mistakes. You know, sports stars can kind of make a whole bunch of, bunch of gaffes in life outside of the sports field, especially in Australia, and we're pretty happy to kind of wipe that under the carpet and go, it's okay, they're football players. You know, it's, all, it's okay, they're celebrities, they're athletes. And so as a society, we like to put our goggles on and overlook, you know, celebrities' mistakes. The other thing that we do is we actually overlook their struggles. Yeah. We overlook the fact that celebrities have hard lives. And that's why we tend to be really surprised when we find someone that's famous that either, you know, gets checked into rehab or passes away or suffers a drug overdose because... From our view, with our celebrity goggles on, we think that their life is perfect. You know, we scroll through Instagram and we go, hey, these guys are fantastic. They, they lead a, a wonderful life because we have our goggles on and we fail to realise that despite the fame and the wealth and the notoriety and the influence, that they still struggle from the same things that we do. Yeah. 
And so we tend to overlook people's humanity. Uh, the second dynamic of celebrity status is that we tend to uh, distance ourselves from someone's achievements. If, if someone who's famous achieves something really significant, we tend to applaud them and yet at the same time distance ourselves from whatever it is they've achieved. Yeah. You know, we look at something, someone that does something great and we go, well, they were able to do that because they're successful. You know, they were able to do that because they're wealthy. And we want to distance ourselves because we don't want to take responsibility. I, <laughs> I had a laugh uh, recently when someone was talking to me and they're talking about a specific actor and they're like, we're, we're talking about how fit, how fit this guy was and they said, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's really unfair because, you know, he's got, he's got his own cook and he's got his own personal trainer and he probably doesn't work that hard and, uh, and he's got tons of time to spend in the gym, you know? And to a certain extent, he's right, you know? I reckon if I had a chef and a personal trainer and spent half the day in the gym, I'd probably be fitter too. <laughs> But the fact that someone has achieved something, I can't distance myself from taking responsibility for it. Yeah. You know, I might not be able to spend half the day in the gym, but I can get, certainly get on the treadmill three times a week. Yeah, right. And so we look at people through our celebrity goggles and we want to distance ourselves from actually taking responsibility. You'll never have influence over the areas of your life that you fail to take responsibility for. Right. And so the question, I suppose, is, you know, it's do you even Bible month, so what are we talking about celebrities for? And this is what I feel. I feel like as Christians, we often know that we shouldn't uh, put celebrities on a status, like on a pedestal, sorry. We shouldn't just always look up to celebrities. And unknowingly, what we do is we read the Bible and we put the Bible and the, more importantly, the characters that are in it, we give them celebrity status. We, we read the Bible and we give them celebrity status. And then we take these two dynamics and we go and apply them to our lives. Number one, we overlook their humanity. We overlook that they're exactly the same as you and I. And then we overlook the need to take responsibility. We look at characters in the Bible and we go, these people are amazing. You know, Jesus achieved amazing things. Um, that's fantastic. We honour you, Jesus. We love you. You're a celebrity. But he was a man just like you and I. And so when Jesus says, greater things will you do than what I've done, that can't be something that we push off into another life, but it has to be something that we embrace as a responsibility as, as believers, as sons and daughters. I've, <laughs> I just only realized this when I actually was preaching this in this first service, but this is actually really shocking. I don't know if you're, if you're picking up on this, and I'm going to read you a few stories this morning that actually are, are pretty shocking when you think about the nature of what actually takes place. And so it's really important that we take off our goggles and read the Bible and actually see what the Bible has to say. Now, this morning is going to be really simple. All I want to do is read a few stories, right? And they're going to be, we're taking the goggles off, and, uh, and we're just going to read some of these stories. I'm not going to put the words up on the screen. Uh, so I just want you to get comfortable, and I'm just going to read you the story. These are the paraphrased uh, DVP versions of the Bible, um, but I'm just doing that to save us a little bit of time, right? So I don't want you to do anything. Whatever you do, just chill out. I'm going to read your story. But I just want to give you some examples this morning uh, of what the Bible actually says. Uh, king David, the most famous king in, in all of the Bible, uh, at least in the Old Testament, the most successful Israelite king of history, and this is a story about 
King David, the most anointed man up until that point in history. And this is what it says. Uh, When the time of year came around again, the anniversary of the Ammonite aggression, uh, David dispatched a man called Joab and his fighting men of Israel in full force to destroy the Ammonites for good. And they laid siege to Rabah, but David stayed in Jerusalem. Uh, One afternoon, David got up from taking his nap and was strolling on the roof of his palace And from his vantage point on the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was stunningly beautiful. And so David uh, sent to ask about her and was told, isn't she Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam and wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent his agents to get her. After After she arrived, he went to bed with her. Then she returned home and before long realized she was pregnant. Later, she sent word to David and said, I'm pregnant. And David got in touch with Joab at the battle and said, send Uriah the Hittite to me. Uh, When he arrived, David asked for news from the front, how things were going with Joab and the troops. And then he said to Uriah, go home, have a refreshing bath and a good night's rest. The next day, David invited him to eat and drink with him and David got him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah again went out and slept with his master's servants because he feared to go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. And in the letter, he wrote, put Uriah in the front lines where the fighting is the fiercest, then pull back and leave him exposed so that he is sure to be killed. Whoa. So Joab, holding the city under siege, put Uriah in a place where he knew the fierce enemy fighters were. And when the defenders came out, some of David's soldiers were killed, including Uriah the Hittite. Joab sent David a full report and he instructed the messenger, after you've given to the king a detailed report on the battle, if he flares in anger, say to him, and by the way, Uriah the Hittite is dead. So Joab's messenger arrived in Jerusalem and gave the king a full report. He said, the enemy was too great for us. They advanced on us in the field. But then arrows came hot and heavy and 18 of the king's soldiers died. When the messenger completed his report of the battle, David got angry at Joab. And then the messenger said, by the way, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. And David told the messenger, oh, I see. Report to Joab and say, don't trouble yourself over this. War kills. Sometimes one, sometimes another. You never know who's next. Double your assault on the city and destroy it and encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she grieved for her husband. And when a time of mourning was over, David sent someone to bring her to his home. She became his wife and bore him a son. And verse 27 says this, But God was not at all pleased with what David had done. <laughs> just think about the humanity on display in that chapter. The, the struggles and the mistakes of one of the most famous characters in the Bible. A guy that saw a woman, took her to bed, got her pregnant and had a husband killed so that he could take her as a wife. Just think about that. This isn't hidden in the back pages somewhere. This is right in the middle, Right? This is one of the celebrities of the Bible and here he is making some famous, famous mistakes. Uh, One of the the people that we really tend to look up to is the Apostle Paul. And the story about Apostle Paul starts out with him as Saul making some really bad decisions. 
uh, the story of uh, the story of Saul. We pick it up in Acts chapter seven, and the context of this story is that a man by the name of Stephen is preaching the gospel. Uh, he's seen people saved. He's seen people healed. And the Pharisees at the time decide the best idea is to try is to kill him. And so they take this guy to trial. They they convict him, and they're stoning him to death. Right? They've set up a they've set up a stake in the ground. They've tied him to their stake, and they're throwing rocks at the guy until he dies. That's the context of this story. And we pick it up from verse 57. It says, yelling and hissing, the mob drowned Stephen out. And now in full stampede, they dragged Stephen out of town and pelted him with rocks. The ringleaders took off their coats and asked a young man named Saul to watch them. As the rocks rained down, Stephen prayed, Master Jesus, take my life. Then he knelt down, prayed loud enough for everyone to hear, Master, don't blame them for this sin. His last words before he died. And Saul was right there congratulating the killers. That set off a terrific persecution of the church in Jerusalem. The believers were all scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. All that is but the apostles, good and brave men who buried Stephen and gave him a solemn funeral. There were no dry eyes in the house that day. And Saul went wild, devastating the church entering house after house after house, dragging men and women off to jail and to be prosecuted. I want to tell you this morning, no matter what you've done, no matter what your history is, God still wants to make history through you. Okay? Just think about, take the goggles off and just think about the gravity of these stories. Think about the decisions that these guys made. Anybody killing Christians on the way to church this morning? <laughs> Hopefully you didn't run anyone, run anyone over in the car park. Uh, but my point is, regardless of whatever you've done, I'm pretty, a pretty high chance it's not going to be as bad as that. Okay? And these guys aren't nobodies. These guys are the people that we look up to. I mean, think about it. Paul wrote half the New Testament. He wrote half the Bible, okay? He evangelized half of like the whole Middle East in, in, in terms of his ministry, okay? But we want to put it, we want to put these guys in celebrity status and wipe their mistakes under the table and distance ourselves from the responsibilities. And my point this morning is, no matter what you've done, no matter what bad decisions you made, no matter what's going on in your life, God wants to change history through you, okay? Come on, there's no place... Come on, there's no place for shame. There is no place for living in shame because of the decisions that you've made. Come on, no matter what it is, no matter what it is, God still wants to do something through you. And so I want to say this this morning, no matter what situation you've been in, no matter what decision you've made, God does not want you to live in shame. He wants you to live powerful and wants you to live victorious. Okay? And the rest of the stuff, He wipes that away. Come on, there is no sin in your past that's stronger than the blood that Jesus shed on the cross. Come on. There is nothing in your life, there's no mistake that is greater or more powerful than the blood that Jesus shed on the cross. Everything that Jesus is going to do for your life, he achieved on the cross. And now we have the privilege of living a life that gives Jesus a return on his investment. 
Everything that God's going to do, he accomplished on the cross. We're not waiting for him to do anything. And we get the privilege of doing greater works than Jesus because of what he did on the cross. Just, just think about the gravity of that in the context of understanding these guys' stories. Think of the gravity of that statement. Greater works will you do because I go to be with the Father. And that verse applied to Paul. Just think, a guy that was, his passion, his weekend job was killing Christians. And yet God said, despite that, (laughs) in, in light of that, understanding that, I still want to do greater works through you. Just think about the implication that that has for our life. I want to read you one story before I wrap this up this morning, and it's, it's the story later of the Apostle Paul. Okay, we, we've just read the story of what he was like in his younger days, and now we're going to look at a story that's 30-odd years down the track. It's in Acts chapter 19, and it's, just, it's a really simple verse that talks about where Paul ended up. And uh, Paul is, is ministering uh, in a town outside of Jerusalem, and this is what it says. And God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Wow. Come on, think about that. That's the, that's the end of the story of Paul. Wow. He started over here as the guy that was a much better sinner than any of us can lay claim to, and yet he ends the story over here as the man that is so anointed that everyone he prays for is healed. And even if you take a hanky that he prays for to the body of someone that is sick, they're healed and evil spirits leave them. It started here with a whole bunch of stuff in the middle and they ended here. And so my point this morning is if you forget everything else, no matter what you've done, I believe that God is looking to raise up a generation of people that regardless of their history, God wants to shift and direct a nation through you. God is looking to raise up a generation of men and women, young and old, that are passionate about the things of God that would, that would change the direction of this nation and the nations of the world. Come on. God wants to raise up a generation of men and women that are passionate about this nation and the nations of the world and they would move so powerfully that they would shift the direction, the heart of nations back to God's way. That they would shift the direction of where we are heading as a society back to the way that God's doing. God wants to raise up a generation of King David's. God wants to raise up a generation of Paul's and these are guys that made horrible mistakes so don't let the mistakes of your past affect you now because God wants to raise you up for this day to move with signs and wonders and miracles. Come on, can I get an amen this morning? Uh, I feel like I've drunk half the wine. Um, <laughs> Listen, the past is the past. I want you to read the Bible with, with eyes wide open and understand the gravity of what it actually contains. And I believe if we start to do that, it's when you pick the Bible up and when you read the stories and actually see them for what they are, then the power of God starts to work through Scripture. If we read the Reader's Digest version of the Bible and flick the page, that's an awesome story. Next page, okay? The Holy Spirit doesn't actually have the opportunity to impact you with the gravity of what goes on. And so I pray this morning that we could take our goggles off 
for Do You Even Bible Month and actually Bible. <laughs> Full noise, 100% wicked Bible. Uh, I want to wrap up with three points this morning. If we're going to do this, I want to give you three points that you can actually go and implement in your life that will actually make a difference. Three keys that will help you make a difference in life. Number one, uh, we need to have a big vision. Yeah. We need to have a big vision. I, I don't know, I don't even know if this is like a, um, I don't know who said this, might have been someone famous, but I just remember it sticking with me so strongly, but I heard someone say, we're going to aim for Mars, but if we make it to the moon, I'll be happy. Because most people never actually leave the atmosphere of Earth. We need to have a really big vision. I I don't know what kind of vision that David had, but it must have been something significant because he was a shepherd boy and when Goliath turned up out of thousands of men, he was the one guy that stepped up to the plate and said, God's got this. I don't know what sort of vision Paul had, but it must have been something significant because he went from holding people's cloaks to healing the sick and raising the dead. Something must have driven them. They must have had some bigger picture in mind that propelled them to where they they ended up. And so I want to say this morning, number one, you need to have a big vision. Dream big dreams, you know. If I I dream that God could do something really elaborate with my life and he only achieves half of what I'm dreaming for, I don't think he will. But if if he only achieves half of it, it still might be 100% more than most people dream for. Dream big dreams. Have a big vision. Aim for something that is well outside, you know. Aim for something that is so far in the future and so far advanced. I believe if you don't have a vision that will at least carry you to three or four generations, you're probably thinking too small. I've got a vision for my children and their children and their children. And if it happens in my lifetime, awesome. But we need to believe for a big vision so that God could do big changes in our nation. Uh, Number two, you need to play the long game. You've got to play the long game, right? The, the story that we read about Paul is a young man. And we know roughly from about the story that we read at the start to where he ended up is somewhere around about 40 years. Okay? 40 years is a long time. And I'll tell you it's, why it's a long time. Because we live in the Netflix generation and we want what we want. When do we want it? Now. Now. You know, we, we want food, and so we walk across the road, and we order a meal, and if it's not there in three minutes, we're getting frustrated, yeah. right? You can go home and cook a burger and see how long that takes you, right? We want everything now, and yet, if we're going to actually receive the things that God wants for us, we have to play the long game. We have to play the long game. Yeah. We need to be dedicated. Yeah. We, need to be, we need to be empowered. We need to be passionate and turn up and go through the grind. If you get fit, you'll notice it doesn't happen overnight. <laughs> I tried, it didn't work. If you want to get fit, you've got to embrace the grind, and you've got to embrace it for a long time. Okay? If we're going to go where God wants us to go, we need to embrace the long game. And number three, you need to make the right connection. You need to make the right connection, and what I'm talking about is your connection with Jesus. You know who David was without Jesus? He's a shepherd. (laughs) He's not the most famous guy in all of the Old Testament. He's a shepherd. He's a guy that looks after sheep in a field. 
That's who he was without Jesus. Do you know who the Apostle Paul was without Jesus? He was a Pharisee that killed Christians that history would never have noticed. A a religious man that went around that was passionate about not loving people and he would have been one of the Pharisees that the Bible talks about whose name was never mentioned. That's who Paul was without Jesus. And so if we're going to do anything, (laughs) we need to do number three. We need to make the right connection. Come on, God doesn't want the Holy Spirit plus you. He wants the Holy Spirit through you. Come on. (laughs) I read a post this morning on Instagram that said something on the lines of, you might be the Bible that someone else will never read. You might be the only Bible that someone ever reads. They might never pick the book up. The only thing that might ever happen to them is they might encounter you. And I pray that when that happens, <laughs> they don't just meet you, they meet Jesus. Come on. We actually need you plus Jesus equals a difference in society. And so I want to encourage you this morning, the most important thing we can do if we want to change the direction of a nation is to connect with Jesus. Every day, every hour, every situation we find ourselves in, we need to connect with Jesus. If we want to make a difference, we need to make the right connection. And so, just while we uh, bow our heads and close our eyes, I want to give an opportunity for that this morning uh, because I know that there are probably people in the building that have never had the opportunity to make that connection before. And this morning, I feel like the Holy Spirit is speaking to people saying, no matter what you've done in the past, I have a plan for you. I have a purpose for you. I have a direction. And I want to achieve amazing things through your life, but you might need to make a decision this morning. And so this morning, we want to give you that opportunity. Maybe you've never walked into the church building before, and if that's you, you have an opportunity this morning, and maybe you have, and you know that you need to make that decision again. For some reason, you've walked away, and you need to come back to Jesus because you know that God wants to shift something in your life this morning. I feel like there may even be people here this morning that feel so much shame over decisions that they've made. And I want to say to you this morning that no matter what decision you've made in the past, God still wants to do something through you. There is no mistake that you have ever made that is stronger than the love that Jesus has for you. And so if that's you this morning, if you need to make a decision, if you need to make the decision to connect with Jesus. I just want to ask you something privately while everyone has got their eyes closed. I just want you to quickly raise your hand and let me know that you need to make that decision this morning. Come on, if there's anyone here this morning that needs to make that decision. Come on, Father, we honour you this morning. Lord, we honour the change that you want to make in this society, in this world, Lord God. And we declare this morning that you see, we know that you see the hearts of people right across this building, Lord God. And Father, we pray that as we make that decision daily, Lord God, to follow you, to make that connection with you, Father, that you would wipe away the shame of any decisions that we've made in the past, Father, and that you would empower us with a passion and a drive to change this nation for good and for God. Father, that you would empower us, that you would love on us, 
and release a shift of power in the name of Jesus. Come on, Father, we honour you this morning. We honour you this morning, Father. We pray that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Come on, let's give him a round of applause this morning. Thanks, Dave. Incredible.